No, don't don't tell me that I have to do a New Year's resolution because if I have to do a New Year's resolution, it might be to stop talking to you. Oh, hi, it's Pete Pomisano here on Off Road, an RLTP podcast. I hope all of you have had a lovely New Year's celebration and kept yourselves safe. I've been watching college football where no one appears to be wearing a mask and they're all just falling all over each other and yelling and screaming, but apparently they're immune to the Rona. So, so there you go. Now, you've probably noticed that we don't do commercials here on Off-Road, unlike almost every other podcast in the universe, because our goal here basically is to promote Buffalo in general and theater in particular. And we try to promote a lot of different theaters and a lot of different artists from different theaters. But of course, Road Less Traveled needs to get a little promotion itself. So today we're going to talk to somebody who coincidentally will help us promote a Road Less Traveled production. Doug Chigner has been around a long time, and now he's directing a show for RLTP called Tribes, and it's going to be opening very soon, so I thought we'd sit down and talk to him. And uh, to hear Doug tell it, it's a great play, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And Doug's not native to Buffalo, New York. He showed up here seemingly out of nowhere, at least that was my understanding of it, and suddenly he's directing and acting and he's teaching out at NU and he's a very popular guy. Had a great time interviewing him. I was over to his house. We did a little interview live. Could be the last live interview for a while because who knows, we might be going back to Zoom very soon. Anyway, I first met Doug almost when he first arrived here in Buffalo, and he's a really interesting guy, and I wanted to know more about this fascinating man, so I sat down and talked to him. And let me apologize up front for the sound quality, because it was a live interview, and I went to his home, and uh, yeah, it sounds like we're in the shower, but uh, we're not. Or a locker room. No, we're, we're in a dining room, and there must have been a lot of hard surfaces, but uh, let's face it. Since COVID and since Zoom, I've totally lost track of what good sound quality is anymore. So please welcome to RLTP's Off-Road, Doug Chigner. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. Let's, let's start with the most important question, okay. which is pronounce your name Chigner, <laughs> am I correct? Or Chigner. Chigner. Yes. My, my dad said, always used to say, that's <laughs> the way the dogs bark in German. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just without the ZS. It's, it's Chigner. <laughs> it's the way the dogs bark in German. That's, that's great. It was uh, a big thing growing up and, and being in, on resumes. I would always... Pr- pronunciation guides and anytime I auditioned or interviewed they would have to talk about my name and it was always a good icebreaker <laughs> all right you know what I'm gonna just run down a bunch of things that okay. because these are your credits you know you're not just some dude mm-hmm. uh, you, <laughs> your credits go way back and and I'm just looking at all of these things that you you know resident director of Mill Mountain Theater you've been in everything from Roy and Juliet to Passion of Dracula affiliations with the International Shaw Society and guest directed or taught at Virginia Tech Franklin and Marshall Dickinson University the McCarter Theater in Princeton Walnut Street man you have been around my friend it's been a, a, a lovely journey that's the, <laughs> the advantage of getting old. Uh, well, and I can I can do that in a, in a kind of order, if that helps. Uh, well, you know, it's not even a matter of, we, we're not going to spend yeah. all of our time on all of those no, things, can, but just I the idea do. that you have this vast experience, and of course, you, you started out as... What, <laughs> Red Bud, Illinois. Which Red Bud, I'm, Illinois. I'm going to have to hope that's near Chicago, maybe? No. It's, Not even? It's near St. Louis, actually. It's on the Illinois side of St. Louis is it, in, in Illinois. So is it uh, a, like a little farm? Farm town. Tiny. No kidding. Same size as Grover's Corners, <laughs> uh, literally. Yeah. No, it, that's, well, that's why the journey is so wild. 
Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, when I saw that, I thought, okay, well, that has to be close to Chicago. And I'm sure he got some interest in theater in Chicago because he went to the big city and mom and dad took him there. I'm I'm making up this story in Mm -hmm. my head of where you probably probably came from and obviously you're now going to tell me that's all baloney it was none of that at all so let's start with with red bud and how did you get an interest well well what was it like there did you have any siblings I have a sister uh, younger than me, classic, traditional uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran family. We were we had a wonderful upbringing, uh, very quiet. My dad was much more interested in the world than a lot of the people in Red Bud were. So we would go to St. Louis. Uh, we had the Muni Opera, which is a... What did your dad do? He sold insurance. He mm-hmm. sold uh, life insurance for a Lutheran insurance company, uh, but would always take time for the family. Mm-hmm. And... We would go to St. Louis and go to the Muni Opera, which was a 14,000-seat outdoor theater that's still there. But that's when shows toured with the stars. So growing up, I got to see Yul Brenner do King and I and Carol Channing do Hello, Dolly, and all of these amazing stars. Wow. We were up in the free seats way in the back. Oh, of course, yeah. So they were little tiny dots, <laughs> but that's really what sparked my interest in theater. How long a trip was it to, to St. Louis? 45 minutes, hour. Oh, that's not yeah, too bad. Depending depending we <laughs> so how often would that happen? Every week in the summer, we would go to a lot of them. No kidding. Uh, you'd get there stupidly early and have a picnic so you could get a free seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had like a thousand free seats in yeah, the back yeah. and still do. And that that's really what started it for me. No kidding. So you're watching these little dots a thousand yeah. miles away. And did your sister get interested in this too? She did. She did some of it in college. She met her husband at a, a Lutheran college in Chicago by doing plays together. Mm. Yeah. I put in my eighth grade yearbook that I wanted to be an actor when I grew up, uh, uh, which for Red Bud was pretty shocking. And I always knew that there was something out there for me. And and I knew I couldn't stay in Southern Illinois to, to do that. So, but did you did you do some kind of did you do elementary school theater? You know, like you oh, know, sure. were you the third lamb on the on the left oh, during the Christmas pageant? You did all of that stuff. I did a lot of leads in high school. That's kind of how I had distinguished myself in high school because yeah. I wasn't because athlete. in eighth grade, my greatest ambition was to get to ninth grade. You know, yeah. and see the girls and stuff. The first of three times that I played Dracula was in, <laughs> in high school <laughs> on the week of my my grandmother's funeral and oh, I got geez. to lay in a coffin. That was a little, <laughs> oh, a little odd. A little odd. But none of my family, immediate family, had gone to college. And I discovered a university in Eleanor Wesleyan in Bloomington, Illinois. Yes. And they had a BFA program. And that was a huge experience for me to meet people largely from Chicago and understand what the business of theater really was. And, and that, so you were with like-minded people all like-minded of a Like-minded people, crazy people, but like-minded people. (laughs) Our student orientation show in the summer before we started school with all the parents came to was Equus. So, oh my God. <laughs> we, we with the my, nude scene, or were we all wearing without body? the nude scene? Without the but nude scene. Okay. Still, it was enough to, to get my parents' attention. Um, I'll bet it was. But after that, you know, I, I tell students not to go to New York first. But I stumbled on an audition for the National Shakespeare Conservatory in New York City. Right. One of just about every program that I've been in my life that eventually went bankrupt. Oh. Uh, so <laughs> I was on Forty Eighth and. Probably Probably wasn't your fault. I'm no, just, I'm just I'm, saying. Well, some of it we'll, we can talk about. But, <laughs> uh, but, but that was at, so that was after Illinois right Wesleyan after College. Yeah. Right after college, you stumbled. So, no, you, you didn't stumble upon it. Did you? Were you actually looking for graduate programs? Yeah. And, and then uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And this was a, a certificate program. Uh, I just wanted something to do, and it it met in New York City, and we were. I was in an old rooming hotel on 48th and 8th, just a couple blocks from the Coke sign. I spent (laughs) eight years there, uh, two years at the conservatory and six years growing up and coming out and learning about the world. It was a huge education. A 21, 22-year-old man wandering around New York City. How exciting. And what has turned out to be a progression in my life, also with a tragedy. I moved to New York at the same time AIDS did. 
and oh. watched a lot of my friends go. And the fact that New York found out what safe was before the rest of the country is the only reason I'm alive and they're not. Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of felt I needed to honor that. Well, it was such an epicenter. Oh. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. immediately there would be... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so what were you doing with yourself? Uh, so I, I worked at a florist. I worked at a bookkeeping company, all the day job stuff. I would get work outside New York, and I got non-paying work, a lot of showcases and those kind of things. But it wasn't until I was working at a theater in Virginia, and I got a call, and I'd been doing summer stock in Indiana, at a little theater in Indiana, and in one summer, they had all these directors, guest directors come in, who all turned out to be major people in theater. One of them was auditioning, was directing at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Mm -hmm. So my buddy and I got in the car and they were auditioning in Delaware at a brand new training program. Their casting director was starting a graduate program with a a real live MFA. And so we went down, uh, we, uh, we were roommates in New York and we were both working in Virginia. We went over to Delaware on a rainy, snowy Sunday and auditioned for Utah Shakespeare. And they said, oh, we're starting this graduate program. And we said, oh, no, we're, we're New York actors. Thank you. We don't want to go to school. In three hours, they had gone through the entire audition process for the program with us. The whole faculty was there. Wow. We were filling out financial aid forms, and we both got accepted into the very first program, the first group of students that that program had put on. And I spent three years in Delaware and got out of New York after, after eight years. Wow. It's crazy. Crazy. <laughs> but that that really turned me around. It was really rigorous training. We did the Suzuki stomping on the floor exercises. We did our third year. They would take one class for three years. And our third year, we did a 13-play rep season. Holy uh, cow. Uh, just extraordinary opportunities. Yeah. Extraordinary opportunities. Big ideas. It was all about changing the American theater. Mm. It was actually really directing tra- good directing training because it was not about what is your part. It was about what bigger story are we telling. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my colleagues became directors. Five of them were on Broadway within two years of, of getting out of my program. 3,000 people submit for that program, and I got in and uh, learned a lot. Was this the professional theater training program? That, yeah. That, is it, that was the name of it. The, the PTTP, it was yeah. called. So how did you, um, what was the criteria, if there were that many people? I'm trying to get at how you managed to squeak in. I, I am still trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, I, was, I wasn't equity. I was almost 30, and they were casting a company. So somebody with a little bit older was helpful. Okay. I was tall. I was always trying to be straight so I could play lots of old men. I spent a whole career playing <laughs> old men before I was 30. I did King Lear at this, this Delaware program. Now, don't tell me you were also a triple threat. Were you a singer-dancer? No, couldn't sing a note. Uh, <laughs> can, still can't. Still can't dance, can't sing. So uh, a program that focused on the classics was really useful. And I was always the old guy. The youngest thing I played in three years there was Prospero. And that's because we decided he didn't have to be retiring. He was <laughs> retiring early. Uh, changed my life. Changed my life. I guess. And I never went back to New York full time. I always visited. I got on a children's theater tour that went to giant theaters all down the West Coast. Got my equity card. And then I made the rounds of a lot of the Shakespeare festivals. Let me just go back just a little bit. So how how much time did you actually spend in New York before this happened? I was in New York seven years. Seven years, okay. And then three years in... Delaware with the professional with this uh, with professional this theater training program, program. three year program and they only took one class for three years we didn't have freshmen sophomore juniors we just they would just work the hell out of us for three years and that's why we could do. But the then, but then, were you rapid. somehow graduated out of it, or, yeah. or here's you had, your certificate? You got, thanks you got for a helping. Degree. Sure, it was a legitimate MFA, mm. uh, which has turned out to be really helpful when I got into academia yes. uh, to have a, an MFA. And then I got my equity card pretty quickly. 
but but the Shakespeare festivals were really rich opportunities to go off some summer and to do some three, sometimes four shows in a summer mm-hmm. at Utah, at uh, Wisconsin, a beautiful outdoor theater. And uh, I did a year and a half in Kansas City and did some camera and commercial work and worked, I played Petruchio. All of these roles, I started to get more my age when I turned equity and when I stopped pretending I wasn't gay. And as soon as I stopped (laughs) pretending I wasn't gay, then I got to play Orlando and As You Like It. And then I got to play Petruchio because I wasn't putting on this mask anymore. I see. Changed my whole life. And and I'm able to share that with my students, which is fun. So I did a couple of years in, in Kansas City, a couple of years just living out of my car. While I was doing that, one of the guys that got me in from the Summerstock Theater said, oh, there's this theater in Virginia that you should look at. And I had done one show when I was living in New York at at this theater in Virginia. And while I was in Kansas City, they asked me to come back and do another show. That's where I did Romeo and Juliet as the prince. And we had a lot of equity, but it was hard to get an equity contract for the prince. So I said, okay, what if I just come in and assistant to the direct and be part of the project, Mm -hmm. and you don't have to pay me for the first few weeks, and you just pay me for one week. And the night that show opened, they said, oh, by the way, we have a resident director position that just opened. And I stayed there for seven years, eight years. And I really became a director. I loved the acting, but when I started getting a chance to look at the show from a bigger picture than just my part, I just came to life. I directed 30 shows in eight years. We had an incredibly big season, casting out of New York. I directed everything from children's theater to new plays to big musicals. I did 42nd Street. The first thing I did, we had a black box, and I did falsettos in Roanoke, Virginia (laughs) in the early 90s, Uh, and we thought we were going to get picketed, and and the town loved it. It I was just going to say, it probably ended up being a huge success. It was, because we told them what it was about before they came in, so the only people that came knew what they were getting into. Right. Oh, smart. Glorious cast. They all hated me. We had all sorts of issues. <laughs> My first musical, and here's a 600-page score with no dialogue, went very well. I did a lot of really good work there. I got to do Death of a Salesman. I got to do plays that I've always wanted to do and learned a lot. Uh, we did 12 shows a season, so I was working all the time. I did outdoor drama playing Stonewall Jackson in the South when people would come back and tell me, oh, no, that's not how he said it. He said the line this way. Oh, you know? boy. Um, <laughs> just just a real growing My experience. My great-grandfather remembers him, and he has... Yeah. So after eight years of that with this amazing resume, I went, you know what? I think I've succeeded as an actor. I've succeeded as a director. I want to consider teaching. When you were with the, the professional theater tra- training program, was that a focus on acting and directing? No. Where did you get your directing chops? Yeah. Was it just from experience, from being in so many shows? Where did the directing bug hit you, and where do you think that you got that training most, most strongly? At the PTTP, <clears throat> as we called it, it was always talking about the bigger picture. It Mm -hmm. was always talking about the structure of the play. It was directing training intended to make actors director proof (laughs) Uh, so that if the actor already knew that, it didn't matter whether the director was good or not. Mm -hmm. That was sort of our philosophy. And it was always, this is going to change the history of the American theater, what you're doing tonight. And that was really good training. What they had too much of, I didn't have enough. And so I got a confidence and intellectual appreciation of theater that was great. Probably, it sounds to me like, you know, you you were looking for another way to express your creativity and your art. And now you said, okay, as you just said, I've done this, I've done this. Let's see what education has to hold for Yeah. So go ahead, pick up the story there. So, So I got the job at Mill Mountain, did all that theater. Then I met this guy from New Hope when I was in New York. I moved in with him, uh, who was a 
executive at Johnson & Johnson and used New Hope as my base to start getting to know academia. In four years, I was at three different universities and worked at the McCarter uh, Theater Company with their education department. Huge training. I got did some work, some directing in Philadelphia, got great credits from that. But going to those different schools with completely different approaches to teaching theater was the best education I could get. Hmm. It was glorious. And by that point, Delaware went bankrupt. Everything went bankrupt after I left it. Uh, National Shakespeare went bankrupt. And Mill Mountain was going bankrupt when I was starting to leave. Oh, and I said, I better get out of there before I can. <laughs> they wanted me to come back and run it, and they sent me the financials, and I went, mm, mm-hmm. nope, can't, that's not my job. That's a sinking ship. Yep. Yeah. So I learned a lot, and just because what has turned out to be a progression of disasters in my life, moving to New York with AIDS, I was at Virginia Tech for the shooting. Oh, uh, no. And I was there for one year, and I had already gotten a job at Niagara, but in the spring, I was the only one in the theater building that day, the only faculty member. There were other students and administrators, and we started hearing news reports, and we were locked down in our building, sure. and it was about 100 yards away. We couldn't see the building where the shooting was going on, but suddenly we saw ambulances, and we were caught there, and I was the authority figure. Never felt more impotent in my life. They called from, uh, a, a, I think it was NBC called and got the theater because nobody was giving interviews, and I was live on the air. I can't even imagine it. It yeah. was absurd. It yeah. was absurd. So, and then we had to figure out how to come back and finish out the semester, which was just extraordinary. Oh, geez. What year was that? Because I had that completely was, forgotten about yeah, that. Yeah, that was tw- uh, 2017. 2017. 2017. One of the things that I should mention about uh, Mill Mountain Theater, because this is the, the disaster thing. After I had been at Mill Mountain many years, six or seven years, we had a shooting in a gay bar. And a guy walked into a little scuzzy gay bar in Roanoke and shot six people, one of them fatally. We did the inevitable vigil the next night. Mm -hmm. And I'm standing next to my artistic director and the chairman of our board. And I said, oh, I was just in New York when we were casting. And I saw this new play called The Laramie Project. Uh. And it's about a death in a small town. Mm -hmm. On the one-year anniversary of the shooting, I got to direct a full production of the Laramie Project for free as a way to help the community heal around this this shooting. What happens in Laramie happened exactly in Roanoke. Uh, Ted Koppel came down and did five uh, episodes on what it's like to be gay in Roanoke. The media, the churches saying, oh, we hate homosexuality, but we hate murder. What are we going to do? The most extraordinary night of my life uh, was, was that production, that week. A week before we opened was 9-11. And I was in rehearsal with these guys. Most of them were from New York, and they were spending their time finding out if their girlfriend was in the subway station. Sure. Horrifying. Had to figure out when to go back, how to get going again. We cried, we prayed, we we worked, we oh. got back to the play. So when we opened that play a week later, we had the rawest audience imaginable. And we did a little video about, here's what happened in Roanoke, here's what happened in Laramie. I pushed the Roanoke video off stage and we just told the Laramie story. And that distance of seeing about another town was really impactful. There was a flag hanging on stage for a courtroom scene with a light behind it, and all of a sudden that looked like this symbol. Mm. There's an Islamic character that came on and announced herself as a Muslim. One night the audience burst into applause, the next night dead silence. Wow. Uh, The first talkback, a pastor stood up in the audience, and I'm running this talkback, And he said, I want you to know that what happened in New York, in Pennsylvania, in Washington, in New York, and in Laramie, and in Roanoke happens because people are taking what I say in the church and 
screwing it up and misinterpreting it, right. and it's my job to fix it. Good and for that, him. That was our first, Amazing. our first talk back. Amazing. That was a life changer. That was a life changer. And another time when, when uh, a tragedy turned into a remarkable opportunity. Wow. That's. I just don't even have any questions. I'm just going. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I can it, babble it, forever. It, so no, no, no. I mean, it's it. it's amazing. Just there, there are so many interesting details, and all of these places that you've stayed, you sort of planted yourself in a lot of these places, and obviously you did very well there mm -hmm. because you got to stay, and in some cases they asked you to stay even longer, and you were on your way out. So now. How did the Niagara? How did you get to Niagara? Where did that come from? And and I'm looking for something other than uh, I saw an ad in the paper that they were looking for. Yeah, is that what happened? Well, <laughs> I was I submitted I think to 40 different theater programs University. in yeah. those years, different universities. Now I was starting to get a better sense of what kind of program I think I would be better fit for. I was building up an academic resume by going to those other schools, mm -hmm. Dickinson and, and Virginia Tech and uh, Washington and uh, Lee. And I came upon Niagara and I thought, well, I don't want to go to Western New York and Niagara Falls and Buffalo. And, and I came up for, I, I got as far as the interview, and I came up and it was snowing, and I went, this is, isn't going to be for me. <laughs> this is just stereotypical. This isn't going to happen. Oh, man. Uh, and I was down in Virginia and yeah, hoping yeah. to get full-time there. Niagara University Theater has something that no theater program I have ever seen in the country has. Really? Theater programs tend to choose between being a conservatory, we're going to get you your K sound, we're going to get you scales, we're going to be a BFA program where you learn about the business, or being a BA program where we give you liberal arts education, we're teaching you general, and maybe you'll have three semesters of acting in four years. Right. Niagara did both. Hmm. They have this unusual state-sponsored structure, which nobody else has been able to pull off, where we can give them the full educational side as well as the full conservatory. We have eight semesters of acting, eight semesters of dance, physical theater, uh, combat, speech, voice, a glorious musical program right now. We do eight shows a year on our little stage with a small, with a small company. And now, do you think that's because Niagara is more... I mean, I've always thought of it as more of a private school. You know, it's not a UB. No. It, it's more. It's got a more of a private focus. Do you think that's the reason? Or it, how, it, how are they able to pull this off? It was a good balance. We had, uh, yeah, it's a Vincentian school. Mm -hmm. And I thought they would never want a gay man to work at a Catholic school. But they were cool with me on that. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that's, that I've found really helpful with Niagara is that the Vincentian mission is very much about service and service to the poor. Okay. Teaching theater to young people as a service, not as something you're doing for yourself, has been remarkably satisfying. How and interesting. Remarkable. It's so challenging. But that's the whole atmosphere of the university. We're giving back. Mm. It's not even all that dogmatic. It's we're giving back. Oh, I love it. I never knew that. I yeah. never thought of that. Yeah. And I Because as I said to you earlier on, when we were just setting up here, I thought the number of people who have come, who have been successful and come out of that program yeah. that, that I have worked with or have just been around and I know of is astonishing. Mm -hmm. So Niagara has been the only program that I came across that balances, that gives you the full academic education plus the full hardcore skills. Mm -hmm. It's almost unethical to train somebody to be an actor today because the percentage of people that actually make a living at it are miniature. And I start my business classes by reading that to them and telling them about how unlikely it is that they're going to make a full living for 10 years doing mm -hmm. that. The reason I became a teacher and the reason I became a teacher in theater and then ultimately why I went to Niagara is the things we teach them really genuinely give them the best shot at getting work in the theater. We are good all-inclusive training program for theater. That, Good that, skills. That just, that, see, that, that makes me so happy. I've always felt that some of these colleges that will just take, uh, they'll take anybody uh, into the theater program, and it doesn't matter, you know, their their talent or their their desires, and and they'll take their money, and they won't tell them the reality because yes, it feels great 
but let's talk the practicality of it. Yeah. So I'm happy to hear that this is more of what's going on. That's that's about a third of what we do in the fall semester with the seniors. Yeah. We zoom in a wonderful, wonderful agent uh, who's a Niagara grad and, and now very successful as a, a film and camera actor as well as, as a big-time agent. And we get that side of things. We bring in a voiceover alum who talks about it. And we... Do you get into contracts? And, and you said contract, contracts, union things. Yeah. And this year, equity has completely changed their process in July to open access. Yeah. So I had to completely relearn all of that. <laughs> it was extraordinary. And it, it, the students force me to stay up to date, yes. which is also one of the challenges of being at the same school for a long time. You get stuck and we've got to get new stuff. So I, I feel good. And then... We do all of these different styles of theater over the first three years. Sections on Chekhov, on Shakespeare, on uh, camera acting, the, the, the whole range of things. A lot of bold physical theater with mime. Currently we're doing aerial work. Really unusual things for an undergrad to do. So I call my, my year the synthesis and the profession. We go back and we review the things they've learned and we get back to just simple, honest, contemporary acting, which is what they're going to be doing 90% of the time anyway. And we go back to those foundations and I get to build on what my colleagues have given them and, and find my own approach to that and put it in the context of this is how you get an audition, this is how you get hired at the theater twice because they like you, mm -hmm. not just they like your talent. Those fundamental things that I learned from basically sitting in every seat in the theater and I get to direct. So besides the seniors, I also get to teach the directing class. And I started that from the beginning, too. So every it used to be in the senior class, we had the directors. And we moved it to the junior class because they were having such epiphanies about mm. renting theater that the faculty said, when I got there, let's, let's move it to the juniors. Let's get so it earlier. We can encourage nice. that. Yeah. They're, they're, they're discovering all this, and then they're leaving. Mm. I teach a class uh, with, with the juniors in the fall, and they pick a 10-minute play. They each pick their own 10-minute play. We spend the first third of the semester hardcore academic analysis, doing papers, doing structures, outlines about how to break down, how to look at a play from a very technical point of view, a paper about the concept, how the creative work works and what the director needs to know about design to get the most of designing and to get everybody on the same page. Then they have their own auditions. We manage this huge audition just for these, this year, 18 directors. And they get to see what that looks like at the other side, which always makes them better actors. All of a sudden they go, oh, look, a monologue doesn't have to be more than a minute. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't get that. Oh, they want me, not who I can pretend to be. All the lessons I learned, I get to share with them. And then in December, at the end of the semester, we give them an incomplete. And in January, our first prediction, production is the short play festival. And they get two live performances for paying audience of their work. Mm. And wow. it is the most motivated class I ever teach yeah. because they're not just getting a red pen at the end of the semester. They're working with their own casts, rehearsing it, managing it, which is we learn so much about time consuming at Niagara because those students are in class more than anybody else in the university. Did the students find it satisfying or frustrating or eye-opening or all of All of that. <laughs> all of that. And what, and what yeah. about you as a teacher? I love it. I love it. <laughs> it, it. It's hard to watch people have to learn the same lesson over and over again. And you, no matter what you say, they have to experience it themselves. Yes. That's how I've learned everything, by making a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's there's actual studies that, that prove that, mm -hmm. that if you fail something on a test, you're more likely to remember it. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to believe me on that, but we work <laughs> on it. And it's, it's an opportunity for me to be open and vulnerable because I'm teaching these guys directing while I'm directing them in shows in the evening. And so I have to live up 
to the standards that I'm putting out for them. And that has made me, forced me to grow and to How be specific. It's the best time of my life by far. And having stayed at the same place and not having to work, worry about the next job is really comforting to get tenure and to be, to be there as remarkable. Are these innovations that you have helped bring about because they're helping to keep your teaching career fresh, new things happening, like the Senior Showcase, which mm -hmm. we'll talk about also in mm -hmm. a second. But are these things that, that you think that have helped keep you fresh as a teacher and have helped maintain your, your interest in, in, well, <laughs> in sticking around? Yeah. Absolutely. I think I'm in the right place. Mm -hmm. uh, we have remarkable uh, music director that came in recently uh, with a PhD and is renovating that whole program in the yes. last five years. We have a remarkable young theater history teacher who replaced Dr. Sharon, who'd been there 50 years. Uh, so we're getting new blood into nice. the department from different angles. But uh, my experience with the profession has been helpful, I think, because I can be the one that says, well, this is how it really is out there. Right, right. We do a, a project that I'm very proud of uh, that I think I sort of stole from another, another theater program. The last semester of the senior year, I match every student up with an alumni who's been in the Niagara University Theater, been out at least seven or eight, sometimes 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. I match them up. They do an interview on the you, phone. Like a working actor or a, a director? Whatever. Mm -hmm. Whatever they're doing. Some oh, are working, doing. some are not. Okay. They interview them, which they hate, and then they love when they <laughs> actually do it. They write a paper. They report back. And so the students walk out with 20 different versions of what you can do after you get a Niagara Theater degree. Wow. And it is so comforting and hopeful. And enlightening. Oh. And enlightening and inspiring. Yes. Because all of them have found something that they got at Niagara they wouldn't have gotten if they didn't get there. That's great. And, and the comfort of knowing you don't have to get a Tony Award by the time you're 30 to be considered <laughs> successful. And, and that's really hard for them to open up to other possibilities. And because we give them a good education... They're, they're educated for that. They mm -hmm. know more, you know, they can, some of these conservatories, the students come out and they can't reference anything older than Wicked because that's all they know. <laughs> I do want to talk just briefly, and was this an innovation of yours, this senior showcase mm -hmm. that I um, kindly get invited to every year. It's a lovely showcase. It's where the kids, the seniors, get to perform in front of local actors, directors, you know, casting agents, whatever you want to call them, theater managers, and they get a taste of what it means to perform in front of quote-unquote self-excluded important people in the theater community. Was that an innovation of yours, and why did it happen? We had had a kind of talent show that they called the Senior Showcase, and it was mostly for other students and the families, and it was great fun, uh, and they just got to cut loose, and it was completely unstructured. Uh, they had begun to try to get some Buffalo theater people to come up and see it. Mine was the first year, I believe, that we actually rented a space in Buffalo mm -hmm. and did the 4 o'clock version, which is we call the industry version. Right. It's hour-long. Everybody gets two and a half minutes of material. And one of the things I did when I came to town, when I came to Buffalo, was reach out to all the professional theaters because, first of all, I wanted to get tenure and I wanted to get myself exposed as a director. Secondly, I wanted to see what the reputation for Niagara was. So those contact allowed me to get a pretty good crowd at our first showcase. Mm -hmm. And even now with the tab auditions and even though people are now casting crazy in advance, months and months in advance. We're able years. to get 15 to 20 grown-ups to come in. The purpose of it, first of all, is to give them a place to focus their audition material, to have a couple pieces that really show them who they are now and have to kind of forged them in, in a high-pressure situation of, of being in front of professionals live. Secondly, 
some of them want to stay in Buffalo and get work, and it's a great introduction to that. And third is to get the reputation of the Buffalo, uh, of the Niagara degree mm-hmm. around in Buffalo. And all of those have been have been pretty successful. Yeah. It's crazy to manage that in the spring when they're all starting to get you know, ready to go. Uh, <laughs> and the stakes are high. Yeah. But I like that. That's what the stakes are high. There must be just some years when you go, wow, yeah. <laughs> this year yeah. is astonishing. And, and just being so impressed with how people can change mm-hmm. and how the students can open up. And one summer, they suddenly come back and somebody you think just doesn't have a chance to get paid to do this <laughs> opens up like a flower and uh, it's really satisfying to be part of that to, to contribute just a is. little bit to that your involvement in the local theater community the local yeah. buffalo theater Good. community you just mentioned it a little bit because of course i first met you when you got involved with the Cavanoki and i don't know how david found you yeah but all of a sudden he labeled you associate something or other there how did you get involved in all these places and then connected with our ltp and that will segue us right into tribes same to tribes Good. When I came to Buffalo, I hadn't acted for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I had been focusing on directing. I'd been focusing on education. And I met the community that summer after Virginia Tech and reached out to everybody and set up appointments just to talk about what Niagara's reputation was, what we needed to get better at, uh, what we were good at, and also to get myself submitted as a director because I knew I needed to get professional directing work in order to get tenure. That's mm-hmm. publishing in, in our contract terms. And so uh, one of the first places I went was Road Less Traveled, and Scott was directing To Kill a Mockingbird at wow. Studio Arena. Right. And Where you play at Atticus Finch. It was the last show that Studio Arena produced. I just wanted to squeeze that in there yeah. very quickly. I hadn't acted in 10 years, <laughs> and they cast me as Atticus Finch. Yeah, yeah, you don't contract. lose it. You didn't lose it, Doug. Crazy. <laughs> and the theater went bankrupt the day we closed. <laughs> So, that, so you brought that tradition to Buffalo. That wound me around. <laughs> but um, so over these years, I've, I've continued to get really involved in the community, especially early in, in my years here. Road Less Travel has made me an ensemble, and I've had to do wonderful work there. I've gotten to do wonderful work there as an actor and as a director. Shakespeare in the Park, I had some of my best roles. Julius Caesar, uh, I remember. Yep. Caesar and, started and there, right? uh, great things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great things. I was associate director of the Cavanoki for a while mm-hmm. and got to do uh, work with you. Secret Order. Secret Order. Yeah. Oh, Secret Order, it was called. Was it, was that the name of it. changed the name of it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, enjoyed that. As I got tenure, I found my time was better spent at school. I watched all of the Niagara theater community having to spread themselves very thin with their lives and their day jobs. And I, I wanted to be able to do fewer projects that I could commit to more. I see. So I pulled away. But we have these things called sabbaticals, mm. where they give you time once every seven years to go off and work in your field mm-hmm. and not teach. So I've been able to use Road Less Traveled as a place to work during that time. I did some professional children's theater in Virginia one year. And this year, it was going to be Tribes. And when we discovered that script... It was astonishing. Mm. It was astonishing. We got it all cast, and it has a deaf character. And this is the world where you don't hire people that don't have a disability or aren't the right ethnicity. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. And so we actually found an actor who was legitimately deaf, but enormously charismatic and enormously connected to working in the hearing world, and we cast him, and COVID hit, mm. and my show didn't happen. So I spent my sabbatical last spring doing research and doing self-tape workshops in the high schools and trying to get my work at Adapted published. We came back in January, in December now, and the whole cast stayed on board for the year and a half. We have the best design team in Buffalo. It's remarkable getting to work with these guys. And the play has inspired everybody. We all see something in this material that is gonna force us to do something we haven't done before. And boy, that's a good way to start a project. Wow. All right, you gotta give us a little tantalizing taste of the, yeah. the plot or the themes or, or whatever you think you can give away because uh, I, already I'm 
just chomping at the bit to see this, but uh, I'm sure there is more to say. Tribes was written by Nina Raines. It premiered in London in 2013. It's a British play. It made a huge round around the country, including David Cromer's first first big uh, directing production was doing Tribes after he did Our Town in New York, mm. and it launched his career, too. It's the story of a pair of academics who have retired relatively early, uh, kind of uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf kind of <laughs> academic world with these crazy people. And they have three adult children who have all left home and all three decide to come back home at the same time. So the first scene is just the most chaotic dinner scene you've ever seen at all. <laughs> when they're all trying to, to vote each other out and they're all trying to talk at the same time. And by the end of the scene, you learn that their youngest child, who's in his 20s, is deaf. Uh, and he has been trained by their stalwart academic family to live in the hearing world. He's never been taught sign language. Mm. Over the course of the play, he comes back when they're all living in this same big old house again, and the set is wonderful. On that little road less traveled stage, we've got a beautiful, beautiful production. Billy, the youngest son, discovers deaf culture, falls in love with a woman who is very much uh, a coda, who is a child of a deaf adult. So she's been raised with sign language and has been uh, a very successful activist in the deaf community. And he comes back and brings this new discovery to his family, and it's just an explosion. Oh. It just challenges everything the family believed about themselves and about Billy, and it's hysterically funny and <laughs> incredibly powerful watching all of these people navigate how to work with these changes in their lives. David Wontuck, we got, we uh, reached out to St. Mary's School of the Deaf. Of course. We were trying to cast that. We mm -hmm. have a wonderful uh, advisor there, Julie Stoll, and I. there's a big ASL program at Niagara, and both of them suggested David as the one person in town that was the right age and could do this role. Uh, he hadn't acted since high school, but he. we got him in with one callback, and as soon as we put him opposite a professional actor, he just, Blossomed. he just blew up. Oh, he man. just blew up. How lucky for you. Not lucky, he, but how fortuitous. He didn't know how to be a bad actor. <laughs> he, and so we have been working for the last year and a half intermittently just giving him the structure of what he doesn't know he doesn't know. And now we've had three rehearsals this week so far. And every night he just loves it. And they love him. Tell the story about the masks. He's discovering this. <laughs> so here we are. Because we're wearing masks during rehearsal now, yep. folks, in case you don't know this. Yep. Here we are back in COVID land when we thought it was <laughs> going to be over and just recently realized, even though we're all vaccinated, we still need to wear masks. Mm -hmm. Gina Gandolfo, at the first rehearsal, presented us with masks she found on Amazon that have a clear panel in the front. So David, <laughs> who's who has a hearing aid, but predominantly as a lip reader, could follow what we were saying, and yet we could still wear the mask. How interesting. It has been a blast to work on. I'll it bet. It has been a blast to work on. Every one of these actors is completely different. Every one of these characters is completely different, even though we're a family. And already, we're all having such a great time navigating each other's strengths and weaknesses mm -hmm. and coming together. We have the best thing that theater does, which is it's a very specific, very eccentric story of this British academic family, and this look into deaf culture, which nobody knows anything about, mm -hmm. and is enormously controversial and hierarchical and ex an extraordinary world. So we have this specific world that makes enormously universal points about family. Mm -hmm. about love, about tribes, tribes being the communities that we create to define ourselves, our religion, our politics, our families. We create these groups that are like-minded people to gather together 
which automatically also means that means everybody else is somehow less. They're suddenly on the, on the other side. And so we create friends and we create enemies. Mm-hmm. And that's largely what this, the universal idea that this play is about. There was a movie recently, I don't know if you saw it, about the rock and roll drummer who loses his uh, hearing. Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal, Riz Ahmed. Yeah. Which brings up a lot about the culture, the deaf culture. He wanted to get fake implants and so on. I, th- I found that fascinating. So is part of that that focus on the deaf culture, is that part of the uh, of the play's story? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. It's sort of come it's not a an advocacy play. It's not a nice disease of the week movie where everything is happy. Mm-hmm. It's much more complicated than that. But yes, and, and this, this has been an opportunity for me to spend an extra year learning about that deaf community. And it's all over the media. Sound of Metal was an Oscar nominator. Yes. Quiet Place has sign language in it. Mm-hmm. The, the last King Kong versus Godzilla King Kong actually signs ASL. So it's creeping into the community. There's a Netflix series called Deaf You, which mm-hmm. is one of these cheesy college age students <laughs> but it's filmed at Gallaudet University and they're signing and facing college life as a deaf student so suddenly it's exploded all over the community we're here to tell that story about the hierarchy about a tribe that has defined itself very specifically in different ways within that community we're here to tell that story in a way that is universal, that is really exciting. And it's not, I'm going to teach you something kind of play. It's a, you discover this along the way, as the other people in the family discover things that they never knew about deaf culture. Is it predominantly a comedy? It has an enormous amount of humor, humor in it, yeah. But, but it's a uh, serious story. It, it gets very serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stakes get very high, almost accidentally. It's designed as chaos. Many of the scenes are almost incoherent of just people talking of all of these outrageous things <laughs> happening. The score is all over the map. All of a sudden, the music that the playwright suggests are is very bizarre. And somehow, by the end of the play, you realize that those elements all connect. And it's all about one big discovery that everybody makes at the end of the play. Wow. It's, it's the perfect play in that way. And, and to have this much time to really analyze that and, and discover that. And even now, in rehearsal, after I've been working on it for two years, every night, somebody will say something and go, oh... I get it. This mm-hmm. is connects to this. And it's beautifully structured and completely an invisible structure that reveals itself as you go. Let's talk very briefly about you. who else you have in the cast. Yeah. I know David is in it, Dave Marciniak. Yeah. Go ahead, rattle them off. If it you, is, is six embarrass of, yourself by forgetting somebody. No, no, no. <laughs> it's six of, of the most different backgrounds that actors can have, mm-hmm. and we're having a blast with that. David Marciniak, who is just playing dads all over the place, has a completely different dad to play in this one. Uh, Margaret Masman is uh, his wife. Oh, I know uh, Margaret. I worked with her. Wonderful classical actress, great background, very smart. The three children, the youngest one is Johnny Barden, who was a a student of mine, and he worked with you at Roadless Traveled, and a student of mine at Niagara, and has just blossomed since he graduated. The middle child is Anna Krempholz, who has had this remarkable career in Buffalo, and now we're having to navigate rehearsals because she's a scene painter on Saturday Night Live, and she's had to miss a couple rehearsals to fly back and do that. Absolutely worth it. She's great. Good for her, though. And then the youngest son is David Wontuck. He is the public relations man at Deaf Access Services, Hmm. which is the main nonprofit a service company for deaf people in Buffalo. It's an extraordinary company that provides signers, that provides classes, that provides access to the deaf community, to the hearing community, and back. So we have got a team. We sit around the table and talk, and everybody has their own version of it. The last person, I'm not going to forget everybody, Melinda Capellas is a wonderful Buffalo actress who's also had experience with the deaf community and has worked at St. Mary's oh, uh, and yes. brings theater together and has her own challenges. To I've worked with. with Melinda Capellas, and somehow I knew 
that she was connected to the deaf yeah. community, but I don't know how, yeah. I, I, don't know how so I knew that. So that brings the new energy into this family, somebody oh, from the outside. And she's been doing that. She's, they're all so dedicated. This has been the bless of COVID, the blessing of COVID, that we're all so appreciative of getting to be doing this live again. Yes. And the commitment level is remarkable. That's great. Remarkable. That's great. And it's hard. It's a tough play to pull off. We've got the single best dialect coach, Jennifer Tui, who teaches at Bustay, but also teaches is dialect coach for the Shaw Festival. We have great standards it's right now. And it runs January 13th to February 6th, six, seven shows a week. It's a, a tough slot for people to come out in the winter, and it's not a play that people know about. Mm-hmm. But I think the response is going to be really strong, mm-hmm. and I think if they give us a chance and sit through that evening, they're going to be really engaged by it. It's something Road Less Travel does well. Yes, they do. Things you don't expect. Hand to God was a perfect example of that. <laughs> Tribes might be the best script I've ever worked on as a director. Wow. Uh, uh, for that reason. That's saying Because it has that engaging, entertaining, eccentric group of people, but it just resonates with universal ideas. That's a good reason to work, get up in the morning and to drive through the snow and go to rehearsal. I ask people to go off-road, to take the road less traveled, and tell me, if you had not gone into theater, where would you be? What would you be doing instead? Would you be working on a farm somewhere? Yeah, uh, yeah. Is there is there something where you say to yourself, the road I did not take would have led me here. What road would you have taken? Your dad said to you one day, yep. no, Doug, there's no way you're going to be an actor. Yep. That's, that's a great question. Pick something else, and you would have picked what? And I probably now, I wish I would have said I would have picked teaching. I don't think that really revealed itself to me. It was always there, but I don't think it revealed to me until later in life when I just got my own act together enough to think about other people. My career has been a progression of self-focus to outside focus. Mm -hmm. And the more I'm in a room with people that I can lead, that I can share with, that my job is to make them better in the classroom or in a rehearsal hall, the better I become. The less I worry about my own crap and the more I can worry about them. And it has been the healthiest thing I've ever done in my life. (laughs) So I'd like to think I could have found another way to get to that, but it's taken a long time to do. When you, when you were in high school, did you have... Well, you said you, you the, from the first time your dad started taking a, you know, a, yeah. a thousand feet away from theater, you were already focused in on that. There was, there was nothing else like science or no. music no. or anything that... that uh, I wasn't good at anything else. And, and, and <laughs> How do you know? I, you didn't even I, try. No, I mean, I got good grades, but no, I was a one-track pony. I thought this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, you may not have had a plan B, but you're lucky you turned out to be damn good at, all, <laughs> at what you did choose. Doug Chigner, thanks so much for being here on Off-Road. It was a pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Come see Tribes. Oh, I will be. Absolutely. Good. What are you talking about, Resolve, to be a better person? Don't you think if I could be a better person, I would have been there by now? Oh, never mind. Hey, listen, Doug Chigner, great guy, huh? A lot of fun, interesting, interesting life. I mean, he's been all over the country, and and he's been a witness to to history. It's uh, so many tragedies in his life as well, but, but he survived, and he is thriving in Buffalo. And speaking of surviving... Some of you regular listeners will probably realize that, hey, uh, the podcast was a day late this week. Yes, I have regular listeners. And thank you so much, regular listeners. I really appreciate the fact that you've stuck with me through all this time. Anyway, regular listeners will know that uh, the podcast was a day late. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is because I've just gotten news about the production Tribes at RLTP. And the news is that Tribes is going to be postponed. 
In an overabundance of caution and due to the extreme transmissibility of this Omicron variant, uh, for the safety of everybody, for the safety of the cast and crew, and especially the audience, they're going to postpone the opening of Tribes until March 3rd. Now, what this does is it eliminates a different play, Breadcrumbs, from the schedule this season. Perhaps they will revisit it again in the future, but for now, Breadcrumbs is off the list. So that means that people who have tickets for Breadcrumbs or people who are subscribers to the whole season will get a credit for another show or a credit toward next season. So don't worry, somehow RLTP will make good for you. But the, the good news is that Tribes will be back in March, opening on March 3rd. So any tickets you held for Tribes will be postponed and put off till those dates. You should contact the website roadlesstraveledproductions.org. That's all one word, roadlesstraveledproductions.org for more information. So it's a good news, bad news, bad news, good news scenario for RLTP right now. And it looks like it's going to happen to other theaters around town, specifically one that I am involved in. I'll tell you more about that in a couple of weeks. Now, before we say goodbye on RLTP's Off-Road, I would just like to send my deepest sympathies and condolences to my friend Richard Lambert over there at the New Phoenix Theater, who lost his dearest loved one, Mark Moretti, recently. And though I had very few moments to talk with Mark, he was a kind and sweet and generous man, and he will be missed not only by Richard, but by many people in the Buffalo community. So, Richard, my deepest sympathies to you, my friend, from all of us here at RLTP's Off-Road. That's it for this week, but I got to tell you, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to start a new segment on the show called RLTP Ensemble at Work Elsewhere. And we'll be talking about other theaters in town that have hired RLTP Ensemble members and what they've got coming up for the rest of the season, assuming that there is a rest of the season. But I am confident, I am confident that we will resume normal operations very soon. And hey, Tribe starts March 3rd now, so get your tickets for that. And I'll tell you more about what I've been up to the next episode here on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Yeah.